Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. In this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast, I speak with Emmanuel Datt of Datt Capital. Emmanuel provides us with three ASX stock ideas and a concise thesis to match. But before he pitches his ideas, Emmanuel takes us through his current thinking on the COVID-19 recovery, impacts on the various asset classes for which he invests in, and the ways to position for different versions of a recovery. I hope you enjoy this episode with Emmanuel Datt of Datt Capital. Emmanuel, welcome to this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast, mate. It's good to have you back on the program. Thanks, Owen. Thanks for having us. It's obviously a little bit different this time around with uh, isolation measures and and what have you. So uh, we're trying to record this via Zoom. Hopefully it goes all right. I think it will uh, because there's a lot of good stuff in this episode that we want to get to. We're going to provide a bit of an overview of what we've seen so far, perhaps the different, um, the alternative I guess, recovery narratives that we could see, how to play those, and then finish up with some with some stock ideas, which will be a lot of fun. So um, that's this, it's, it's a jam-packed episode. I just want to make one thing clear, and I think you're on board with this, is that when we talk about stocks, obviously, it's a pretty uncertain environment. So this is kind of us, just two investors talking about investing. Um, if you're listening to this at home, please go away, do your own research, don't make an investment decision based purely on what you see or hear uh, in this episode. That said, Emmanuel, why don't you just give us a quick rundown of DAT Capital, who you are, what you do, the types of investors that you're, you're looking to attract to the fund? Yeah, so thanks, Owen. So um, as many of you may know, I'm the principal of DAT Capital, and um, we run a wholesale fund. So our investors are uh, high net worth, uh, families, and uh, institutions. So effectively, uh, we are a little bit different from the conventional uh, equity style fund in the sense that we invest in a multi-asset manner. Yeah. Uh, so we, we invest in fixed income uh, and the like. Yeah, I noticed in your most recent monthly update that you also have some, is it, is it commercial debt in the portfolio? Uh, yes. So uh, that we, we invest in uh, private uh, debt deals or private credit right. deals, as some call it. Uh, and that is just uh, effectively loans uh, with, yeah, direct security mm-hmm. over real assets, real property. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you can think of that asset class as being like unlisted fixed income, uh, which it pretty much is. Yeah, right. So it's, And because you're based here in Melbourne, like I am, a lot of it's based in and around mm-hmm. Melbourne, right? Uh, correct. So we uh, restrict ourselves to deals uh, that are only in the two main metropolitan areas, uh, so Sydney and Melbourne. Okay. Uh, and we feel we, we, we invest in that manner uh, because uh, it assists with risk mitigation from our perspective in the sense that Melbourne and, and Sydney are the only two cities in Australia that really attract uh, the global investor or global capital. Mm-hmm. You'll always find a buyer uh, yeah, in the case of um, 
a distressed situation. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's an interesting conversation we're going to have because although you and I think the same way in certain respects, we also go about our investing quite differently and you have uh, experience in many different asset classes than I do. So um, I'm hoping to pick your brain on what we've seen recently with regards to coronavirus, isolation measures, the impact on retail, on all the different asset classes that you, um, I guess, engage with. Can you take us through, I guess, just to, to set the scene for what we're about to talk to talk to next, just what you're seeing in terms of uh, maybe different asset classes. So just you could bucket it however you like. And, and then maybe after that, we'll dive into kind of what happens next. So I guess um, in, in, the, in um, the coronavirus impact, I think it's been probably the most substantial impact that we've ever seen, uh, uh, inclusive of times during the World War. Um, Effectively, um, government actions have been unprecedented and uh, in many ways unpredictable uh, by this sort of um, response uh, was very hard to predict. You know, state borders, for example, have never been uh, on lockdown. Um, at any time in Australia's history, from my understanding. And, uh, you know, so it's a very um, uncertain times or in terms of the government response that we've lived through and experienced um, the past few weeks. Um, You know, we think that the government response has been appropriate to date, um, just in the sense that, um, you know, there's so little information about the actual uh, coronavirus itself, you know, in the early stages. Um, but now, uh, you know, we're optimistic the spread is being contained, um, you know, new cases continue to trend down. But now that we have some hard data and, um, you know, the situation locally appears to be under control, um, we, we sort of think that um, a de-escalation in the lockdown situation would be prudent, uh, you know, given, <laughs> given the broader effects on society that the lockdown would be having. So just, just uh, you know, especially on... Just to jump in on that, Emmanuel. Yeah. When you say it yeah. might be prudent, are you saying that obviously we're not going to go straight back to no isolation whatsoever? But are you what, what would, in in a reasonable expectation, I guess, uh, and, and sense of the word, where would you fit, see us in say a month from today? As a, as a- well, I think social distancing uh, is here to stay for the moment, but I think that awareness of um, you know the spread of pathogens has been ingrained in us all, you know, uh, not by choice. I, I suspect that um, you know, in, in the early stages of the so-called lockdown, is uh, you know that social distancing was encouraged, and you know there were very various stages in escalation, and um, you know various uh, industries that could not operate, uh, you know, according to the level of um, uh, lockdown, you could call it. So I, I guess, in, in the sense of de-escalation, I, I sort of expect that um, you know life would could be more or less uh, normal, you know, except for those, um, you know, social distancing measures that we're now um, getting used to. I, I could imagine those could be in place for a bit longer, uh, things like schools and kindergartens and, and the like, we hope will be opened up sooner than later. Yeah, I, I guess one thing is that we kind of, we have two extremes. We have those as investors, as we look at mm. this, we're looking at, you know, on one extreme, we've got you know, events, businesses and businesses that attract crowds uh, to drive revenue. And then the other side, we have businesses that are purely online and have adapted quite well. And there's this broad spectrum in between. So I think what you're getting, it's kind of like, we'll slowly just 
creep this outwards. Maybe in a month from today, where it's it's less isolation than it is today. One thing you and I spoke about uh, off air was the difference between demand side impacts and supply side impacts. So perhaps you can mm-hmm. flesh that out for the, the listeners and just kind of explain what you mean there and then some of the challenges or I guess strengths of those two types of thinking. In, in terms of demand side impacts, um, you know, an analogy I can give you is the retail industry, you know, with shopping centers basically uh, shut down except for, um, you know, gross, grocery um, uh, parts of the, mm. of the shopping centers are probably still open. But in that sort of sense, you know, all the discretion retail uh, shops have largely um, closed due to government regulations, but also, um, you know, due to lack of demand from shoppers. Uh, you know, if someone doesn't have a job or uh, for the moment, then um, they're going to be thinking about conserving cash and, um, you know, trying to sort of understand how to support themselves. So that means no sort of, um, you know, surplus or non-essential spending. So um, when I say demand side, that's effectively uh, in this case from the consumer side. But uh, conversely, the supply of these um, discretionary goods um, has also uh, fallen in a sense, in, in the distribution sense, I, I should say, um, because yeah, that's sort of been shifting online. Uh, you know, there are online outlets. So, you know, there are ways to work around each particular situation in, in most instances. Yeah. At the beginning of the year, we heard some ASX listed companies and, and global companies as well point to supply mm-hmm. side challenges, mainly because they were impacted in China and they had warehouses or manufacturing mm-hmm. in the region. So um, that was indirectly impacting our investments and us as consumers. But now we've kind of, mm-hmm. it's been brought to the fore, yeah. this demand side challenge that we have here in Australia and globally. So I think we're now dealing with both of mm-hmm. those. But at the same time, while we're dealing with the demand side issues here, we're still seeing I guess we're seeing a loosening of the supply side challenges in China. So in some senses, the retailers could almost be ready to to pick up the slack of any demand that comes back to the market um, because they've got the supply side sorted. Is that, is, would that Do you think that's reasonable to think that way? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, you know, an example I, I can probably give you is, uh, you know, the construction industry is still open to business mm-hmm. and uh, busier than ever, apparently. Um, and, uh, you know, in January, um, you know, we're hearing about issues, uh, you know, in the supply chain itself, uh, the construction, you know, material supply chain, and, you know, a large portion comes from China, but, you know, China was shut down. So, um, local contractors were getting through the local stock or whatever stockpiles they had, but we hear that's not an issue in any way anymore. And, and that sort of brings me to another point that, um, yeah, as a lockdown, in its current state is the longer the lockdown goes I think the more and more people will start questioning which industries are essential and which are non-essential for instance you know I've been reading uh, accounts of health professionals working in the private hospital system that are being laid off or you know just effectively having their hours cut so it makes you sort of think what is essential <laughs> and what's not essential. Um, you know, in, if this is a true, you know, potential health emergency and um, why the private hospitals um, suffering like this. Uh, you know, it's just obviously one, one small data point, but it definitely sort of makes you think that what makes um, particular industries more important than others. 
I think that's an interesting way to to think about it in terms of supply side, demand side for every business, because you obviously do have those challenges, regardless Mm. whether it's an online business. So I think investors applying that lens can can definitely, I guess, use that to compartmentalize their process and their research. Uh, And we'll get to some interesting Mm. businesses that you've identified at the back end of the call. But another thing you did is you, and we spoke about, sorry, we've we've, um, exchanged a few emails over, over this, is the differences between, I guess, the scenarios that play out from here and i guess this is there's this normalization this you know rapid uh i guess recovery back to a, a normal quote unquote um lifestyle and consumer but then there's another one which is i guess this more prolonged drawn out recovery you've you've, mm. you've that's how yeah. you've kind of broken it down or we've kind of talked about it um maybe we can take them one by one mm. if if we assume that australia does move back to a normalized society, you could say quicker than expected. What are some of the ways that we could be playing mm-hmm. that? Uh, I guess you have to sort of look at it, uh, you know, in terms of uh, the market context. Uh, you know, one thing that we noticed, um, you know, and it would have been, I guess, quite evident to anyone, uh, you know, which sectors would be hit first uh, you know, with the government lockdown. Things like oil demand, which, um, you know, in a normal society, you'd expect demand to be quite inelastic, uh, and inelastic means that effectively we'd expect the demand volatility or, um, to be quite low uh, in terms of change. Uh, but, you know, we've seen such a large shock uh, in oil demand uh, that's just been unprecedented because effectively the whole world has been locked down for, uh, yeah, at various stages, and that's sort of uh, led to a reduction in oil demand, which has affected the price. Uh, then again, you know, obviously the retail sector and the financial sector, uh, due to fears of um, uh, insolvency concerns. Uh, but all these sectors have been uh, affected the most in terms of equity sort of re-rating to the downside. But, you know, conversely, if, we, if we're expecting uh, societies to normalise in time, what that time frame is, we cannot tell. But these are the sort of sectors that, would probably be of interest, um, you know, if, if your hypothesis of um, society will be back to, yeah, back up and running, uh, you know, uh, in, in terms of free uh, movement of people and, and the like, um, then, yeah, these three sectors would probably be interesting for, for any investor out there to look at. Yeah, I get... um, But, you know, can... Yeah, Sorry, I, I didn't mean right. to cut you off, but I was just saying that, so we've got... Uh, yeah. We've got oil, we've got financials, we've got retail. If you If we think about those in the short term are there any things like any factors or or, i guess um variables that you would consider to make something investment grade versus non-investment grade and what i'm getting at here is kind of like would you be looking at i guess capital structure would you be looking identifying weaknesses on the balance sheet first and foremost uh yes absolutely um you you obviously want to uh hedge your bets in the sense that um whatever you're investing in I think you want to make sure that uh, the company could survive. Uh, you know, should we still be in an, uh, should an extended um, lockdown period eventually? You, 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 I guess, want to be sure that you know whatever you're investing in survives the next, uh, you know, six months or twelve months. Um, you know, with a much lower level of business than conventionally experienced. So, um, I, I think that's probably you know a nice simple way of looking at it. And, um, you know, also another heuristic of sorts would be to stick to sort of the largest uh, market cap companies, um, just because you know that 
they, uh, this is a generalization again, that they would have, um, you know, the most solid or be most attractive to any acquirers and, you know, can be recapitalized fairly easily. So, yeah, every situation is different. So, yeah, but those are two sort of um, yeah, guidelines that I'd suggest might be appropriate. Yeah, and I think one thing for me here is, I, I, I agree with you on this, is that, you know, maybe we'll see this kind of reversion to the mean if, if we get this normalization quicker than expected. And so you still want to be mindful of your downside, mm -hmm. absolutely. But it, it could be when we say mm -hmm. normalization, I think one of the things that we talk about or we, or we think about in these sub-situations, and I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this, is when we, mm -hmm. when we say normalization, quote unquote, it might not necessarily be the same. As you've said, it could be a year of reduced business. It could be longer for some of these retailers, right? Because, like for example, just mm -hmm. yesterday... I bought my wife um, her, her birthday presents online because there was no alternative. And had it been the case, I might've walked down to the shopping center or what have you to, to do that business. And this could usher in a new wave of consumer purchasing, couldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that for better or worse, uh, this will sort of uh, change our lifestyle to, to a degree. Uh, you know, for example, um, given that so many people are working and communicating remotely, um, you sort of wonder about knock-on effects uh, of, of commercial office spaces, mm. for example. Uh, will people sort of adapt to working at home or will they still want that sort of more social element or you know, that enjoyment of mingling with co-workers and other people? I think that uh, you know, there will be knock-on effects, but what they are, um, that's still to be seen. Um, you know, it could be a total opposite. It could totally go back to normal and, uh, you know, uh, it could be just, you know, uh, it's still um, uncertain. Yeah. I guess from your perspective too, you, you think about this a lot more because you have the unlisted side of things as well as the listed side. So, mm -hmm. you know, you're not looking just at retailers, for example, you're also looking at the commercial properties and, and whatnot. Um, the other alternative, mm -hmm. I guess, yeah. is that we do go into a more protracted, uh, drawn out recovery, you could call it. And I guess, again, this is at one end of the extreme, mm -hmm. but You've identified uh, strategies or some sectors that people could be focusing on to, to benefit as well in that type of environment. So perhaps you can just flesh those out for us. If we are in an extended lockdown scenario, we would think that the best place to be would be in real asset classes or real assets, I should say. Um, you know, things like agriculture, precious metals, cash, um, unlevered property in some instances. These are the sort of asset classes um, that uh, we would want to be in. And, uh, you know, part of our thinking is that these sort of assets, they cater to uh, the very base, uh, basic needs of human beings. Mm. And, um, you know, effectively, should we still have, uh, you know, monetary and fiscal down the road, uh, these are assets that will always hold their value, irrespective of what happens you know, out there. How, how about and how uh, about yeah. com commodities themselves? So we look at gold, we look at things like silver, platinum, those types of things. How, how do you see those performing mm -hmm. in such an environment? Uh, I think they would perform quite well. Um, it's obviously hard to say or, or provide, you know, a range of upside or potential downside. Um, because so much of, you know, the precious metal commodities um, prices, I feel, is driven by sentiment. So, but, you know, I'd probably say that a handy little heuristic that we use, trust in government basically correlates uh, with the metal price or the lack of trust in government. So, 
you know, people don't trust the government. They're going to be buying physical gold and silver. Uh, you know, whereas if there is a lot of trust in government, then people will generally, you know, be happy to keep cash in the bank or you know, in stocks or whatever the other, you know, investable asset classes are. And that typically comes down to, uh, you know, the fact that precious metals are not interest-bearing in any way. You're not getting, you know, a coupon from them. So they are very defensive uh, in nature from our perspective. But, you know, there is a cost, an opportunity cost to hold them. And speaking of opportunity cost, we've talked about this before. We've said, you know, maybe cash, going all to cash now. We're seeing a lot of investors, or at least in, probably, say, a month ago, started to push significantly, uh, significant amounts of money into cash. Mm. You, you mentioned trust in the government. We've got the financial claim scheme here in Australia where deposit guarantee effectively $250,000 per ADI. Is that the right move? Like, this is a, I know this is, you know, every case varies, but it's a high level thing. Is that the right move right now, do you think? Uh, well, it really depends. Um, yeah, in terms of holding cash, as you say, you know, the, the government guarantee is restricted to 250000 uh per authorised deposit taking uh, institute. I think for um, any investor, it sort of makes sense just to spread your exposure if you, do, if you are sitting on cash. Mm. Um, you know, I think that uh, yeah, if you have questions about uh, the Australian banking system uh, itself, then um, I think the question would be where do you hold the cash uh, or, or which institute is safe, um, you know, but yeah, I guess it's, it's a very um, uh, tough question because um, you know, if you're assuming that an Australian major bank is going to fail, then uh, it really uh, raises questions about, uh, you know, the Australian financial system itself. Um, and, yeah, in my way of thinking, you wouldn't really want to be in cash. Uh, if that was the case, you'd want to be in, uh, you know, hard assets, hard real assets, um, uh, which, uh, you know, you, uh, in that sense, you're not at risk of, uh, yeah, 100% loss. Um, but that may be the case if you see cash yeah, in a failed institute. I, I guess one of the things that we can think about when we talk about the range of outcomes, um, we, we, we know that this is possible, that's possible, but we try and think, I guess, probabilistically. And one of the best ways I, I kind of, I mm-hmm. think, to get to the bottom of like how we think about the likelihood of these possibilities is just to discuss mm-hmm. how you're positioned for this. So, you know, you don't need to go into specifics right now, but how are you thinking about this? I'm guessing you haven't gone all to cash or anything like that recently. So perhaps, you know, just maybe you can comment on mm-hmm. some, of the, some of the things you've done the last month. Throughout March, we were strategically placing ourselves. We were sort of uh, selling a few holdings or reducing some holdings here and there. I think that was more because we wanted to have the cash on hand. Uh, given the environment, you know, having a a decent cash weighting buys you optionality. And, um, you know, that was sort of our, our um, you know, the sort of train of thought or the direction uh, which we were, uh, or the position we were wanting to be in. Were you fully invested? Um, so, yeah, we have. No, we, were, we weren't. Uh, I think we we're holding about 10% cash going into March or, or thereabout. And we finished March, um, you know, at about 20%, at a 20% cash weighting. Uh, or thereabouts. Um, but, you know, since since then, we have been sort of dipping our toes into the market, uh, into, 
you know, some particular opportunities that, um, you know, I, I can talk about. Yeah, now. that'd be great. One really attractive opportunity we found uh, was in a real estate uh, investment trust uh, called 360 Capital, um, our uh, real estate investment trust. Uh, the ticket on that is TOT. So basically, this is a diversified real estate fund uh, that invests across the capital structure. And um, you know, its core business is uh, providing commercial real estate debt developers uh, uh, directly. And so this is an asset class that we're sort of intimately familiar with. And um, we've actually had dealings with um, uh, 360 Capital you know, as principals ourselves in the past. Okay. Um, so we're, we're quite well, quite well acquainted with their sort of, and, uh, you know, the way they structure the deals and whatnot. Um, but also, you know, they've also got you know, the smaller sort of, um, portions of assets, uh, you know, one being in real estate equity, um, uh, itself. Um, they, uh, you know, it, a lot of it was inherited, uh, from the merger, um, uh, of, uh, another, more rates which they which they merge with, mm-hmm. um, or you know they they've also been able to purchase apartment buildings you know at a discount from distressed counterparties as well, and then they basically you know sell that off and try and capture the the difference between discount and market, um, and then yeah they've got um, a couple of small operated businesses that are just of nominal value uh, itself, but um, yeah effectively we purchased this at about a forty percent discount. To the NTA, you know, uh, they were projecting that about 60% of the NTA uh, would be in cash by the end of this. Um, so we're pretty much buying at pre- projected, you know, cash value. But along with that, um, you know, at the price we bought it at, uh, you know, it was we're, we're projecting a you know double-digit returns, you know, 12 or 13% odd uh, with the running yield that we anticipated, and which they can subsequently confirm add that along to you know, a 20% uh, potential uh, unit buyback um, that's now in the process of going uh, through shareholder or unit holder approval. And uh, yeah, so- I had a quick look at this, Emmanuel, and it looks like you bought it at not only a severe discount, they've come out and said, yes, we're, we're confirming the distribution. And then they've said, we're actually confirming that we're going to buy back up to 20% of stock um, because we think it's, mm. we think it's cheap. We think our own stock is so cheap, um, yeah. and we're going to move to sixty yeah. percent cash or thereabouts by the in the next few months. Mm. So I guess for yeah. you, does that kind of and the, the dividend yield is obviously pretty attractive right now. Does that for you kind mm. of just confirm that hey, the downside is cash? Uh, that's where I kind of think about this. The downside is cash. I'm going to get a, a dividend, and then there's you know potential re-ratings coming out of this. Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, um, you know, from our perspective, if um, we held on to this opportunity for 12 months and uh, we assumed that uh, the unit price traded back up to the NTA, uh, we were sort of projecting uh, an almost 100% return. Uh, you know, it was probably except, you know, 70s or 80s uh, percent return that we'd sort of modelled. So uh, it's pretty attractive, you know, considering that for a period of time, this is effectively a cash box, um, yeah, which is an attractive place to be in. But also, you know, also understanding the dynamics of uh, commercial property lending, 
these big market dislocations, you know, you typically see a large spike up in uh, rates on new facilities at, uh, you know, substantially lower uh, LVRs or, or rates of leverage against the security property. So, um, yeah, I, I think that the fundamentals uh, of the industry itself um, uh, are very positive looking forward. Um, we've sort of heard anecdotally that new facilities are being priced three to 600 basis points above um, past deals. And, uh, yeah, so we think the group itself and, and our own fund as well, uh, you know, we're, we're really well placed to capture that um, extra value. Um, that can be sold at this specific class. I guess if I just think about the risk again before we move on to the next stock, um, mm-hmm. where, 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 what kind of properties and uh, like, yeah, what kind of properties is the debt or the equity position against? Uh, so it, it can vary quite substantially. It can be virtually <laughs> against any any sort of real property asset. You know, we ourselves we have our own methodology and our own. Um, bias towards uh, what we consider low-risk property assets. For example, um, construction loans were very popular at one stage uh, over the past couple of years, but um, construction loans for us uh, haven't really fitted our risk profile uh, in the sense that, you know, with a construction facility, you're carrying a lot of market risk at relatively high leverage um, because, you know, if you're financing um, a property through the construction phase, then your reliance on um, the end buyers uh, being able to settle. But how about, say, with 360, sorry to jump in again, um, when you look at mm-hmm. their portfolio, does that match that kind of philosophy mm-hmm. to be, I guess, in your opinion, lower risk? Or how do you perceive their portfolio? Uh, I'd probably say they are medium risk okay. in the sense that you know, they, they obviously can't offer, you know, full and uh, transparent, uh, you know, um, reporting, uh, you know, for the sake of commercial confidence. Uh, but, you know, we do obviously, we, we have like, you know, a large, um, uh, what would you call it, data set of past deals that we've invested in and being offered. So mm-hmm. we've got a, you know, data set of about 150 odd deals over the years you know, that we can sort of refer back to. And um, yeah, we think that their metrics on their loan book uh, are quite reasonable, you know, can, can take a, a downturn uh, of any sort. But, you know, a lot of it is in short duration loans, meaning, you know, short tenure. So, uh, and, you know, they're sort of rolling off slowly as time goes on. So we're not expecting any, um, you know, surprises mm. as such. Um, you know, if there are, then, um, you know, we think the loss, any, any potential losses will be uh, reasonably small, mm. even in a worst case scenario. Okay, that's great. So that was um, a, a, an Australian real estate investment trust, ASX, TICO, TOT. Uh, the, the next company is one mm. that I find uh, a little bit more controversial depending on who you ask and um, I guess who owns mm-hmm. it. So um, I'll let you give us the, I guess, the 101 of, of Challenger and I guess some of the events that have happened recently and what you like about it. Yeah, sure. So um, Challenger, uh, uh, the leading provider of annuities and guaranteed uh, retirement income solutions in Australia. They've also got uh, quite a significant funds management uh, business as well attached to that. 
for those who don't know, an annuity is uh, you're effectively selling a guaranteed income stream to a customer in exchange for a lump sum payment. Annuities themselves can be very bespoke, and um, you know, effectively, the the provider of the annuity makes money by earning a greater return on the invested capital or the lump sum than the income stream that is paid out to the customer. You know, to us, it's quite a simple model. We think that, uh, you know, given the level of volatility and uh, the government, government regulations and the Banking Royal Commission, uh, we think that uh, the theme of there being a structural shift towards annuities uh, will be maintained. We're, we're basically expecting that demand for these products will rise over time. But also, you know, looking at the demographics themselves, Australia's got an aging population and um, you know, that coupled with uh, government uh, legislation about uh, you know, guaranteed income products going forward, um, we think that that provides quite good tailwind mm -hmm. for, the, for the business itself. I think one other thing that isn't really considered is or, or thought about too much is the funds management business itself. It has uh, approximately 83 billion um, funds under management. And um, the way we think about it is if you compare it with uh, a fund manager like Magellan, uh, who are obviously very well known in the Australian market, uh, Magellan's uh, funds under management are about 93 billion. And they have a market cap of about eight and a half billion as of today. And that is versus challenge as a whole. Um, their market cap is under three billion. You know, that's obviously a very simplistic uh, comparison, but it's a little bit of food for thought to maybe consider how much, um, you know, that fund management businesses maybe worth in terms of a sum of parts valuation. I was going to say, how do you value this? But yeah, some of the parts sounds a reasonable way to do it in terms of mm -hmm. so so if you just take that i guess that simplistic view as you said uh, you have effectively two different mm -hmm. assets within this entity that you can value um mm -hmm. if you if you thought about that you would assume that the the life business or the annuities business is actually substantially it's probably a negative value on on, on the overall business but if if we think about challenger mm -hmm. that's what kind of everyone thinks about is that that annuities book. And I guess for me personally, that's where I see the risk mm -hmm. too. Like funds management is a very clean, very pure way to, 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 to run a business. But yeah. on the annuity side, um, it kind of, there's a lot of mark to market or unrealized gains or losses and those types of things that kind of cloud my mm -hmm. judgment. But if you just take it as assets yeah. offsetting liabilities for the annuities, how do you think about mm -hmm. the, the, the downside of the annuities? What are the risks there associated mm -hmm. with guaranteeing those income streams? Well, the risk is that the provider is, an, is unable to provide that income stream. And uh, that's why, you know, it's uh, an APRA regulated industry. And so Challenger required to have, uh, keep a certain, um, you know, to, they have to have a regulatory capital position that supports that, uh, the, those income streams that it's sold effectively. And uh, that's determined by APRA. Uh, you know, they've already come out a couple of times since since this downturn started and reiterated that, yes, we're, we're sort of compliant with, uh, you know, our regulatory capital position and uh, guide along to it. And um, you can sort of see how their portfolio has evolved, uh, you know, in terms of de-risking in the market. You've seen, I mean, they're obviously um, yeah, a large 
player in the local market, so uh, you, you can. It's quite easy to track um, where they've been selling down uh, equity holdings, and uh, yeah, de-risking the portfolio. So um, you know, I think that um, that was sort of the market's main concern. At the moment, it's trading at about 40% of its 52-week uh, highs. So, uh, you know, I think the market has basically assumed the worst. If society does normalize, then, you know, it would expect that um, the share price would start to mean as, as more money starts to come in. Yeah. And one other thing I'd probably say to Challenger is uh, the presence of MS and AD, who are a major uh, Japanese uh, insurer. Uh, on their registry. So they own uh, 16% of the company and um, they've always been touted as you know, a potential uh, acquirer of Challenger, um, especially given that Challenger do offer uh, foreign currency annuities within the Japanese market themselves. And uh, they do have a strategic agreement with uh, this major shareholder. So I think that's also another in very interesting angle, you know, given a large um, market response and, uh, yeah, to, to this um, situation itself. Yeah, I, I guess it's just one of those that I probably, I would personally probably need to do some more work on than I have done already. But um, it's, for me, it's kind of like interest rates falling, um, risk off, um, you know, it's effectively balancing, um, just balancing the liabilities versus the assets to provide this income and, and, and turn a profit. But like you said, the, the funds management business mm -hmm. is growing within it. So it's kind of, you know, there's more than just as uh, I guess, just a look at the, the downside for the life book. That's a really interesting one. Um, the last one, the last stock mm -hmm. that we want to talk about is, I guess you could say, I might call it a little bit, it's a bit more prickly than the other two. It's, uh, it's a bit more of a checkered past recently. So it's a lot smaller. So perhaps mm -hmm. I'll, let, I'll let you introduce it. The last one, and uh, as, as you say, it is uh, quite a speculative pick and a pick that is very highly leveraged to, uh, you know, the economy reopening again. So it's uh, Eclipse Group, uh, the pick is ECX. And, uh, yeah, so this is basically a higher risk turnaround uh, situation um, for us. Uh, so it's involved basically in fleet management and leasing. Uh, so clients would be, um, you know, corporates, government, etc., and um, yeah, managing their um, fleets of vehicles. Um, so yeah, as, as you say, it does have a, quite a checkered past. Um, over the past couple of years, it, it's had um, the best way to put it is variable sort of success in a number of ways. Um, you know, acquis past acquisitions haven't worked out. Um, they've had to take big write downs uh, in the past on, on their asset base. But, you know, um, over the past years or 18 months, they've probably, I think, almost come to the end of the road in terms of their problematic assets, I'd say. They've largely been divested and, you know, a new management team is now uh, in place with, uh, you know, appropriate changes in processes. Um, also, the balance sheet, uh, you know, has um, improved uh, a reasonable amount. A lot of debt has been paid down. Um, you know, there's still probably uh, a bit of work to do uh, from our perspective in the portfolio. And you always have that risk of uh, defaults occurring uh, you know, in, in the fleet book itself. But, you know, I, I think 
that made some sort of various assumptions and modeled it all out. And, uh, you know, we think that the risk is appropriate for the return, for the potential return um, for us ourselves. You know, it is a very small position for us ourselves. You know, don't get us wrong, but, um, you know, I, I, I think the outcome itself is not as binary as uh, the market expects. Uh, I, know I shouldn't cut you off, but I was just, just going to clarify exactly what it's doing and um, mm. with fleet finance. So they get large, which tend to be sticky customers, corporates, medium to large businesses. Uh, they outsource the responsibility for getting cars and vehicles on the road for their employees. And um, over the duration of the, the, the asset's life, they can clip the ticket. And then at the end, hopefully there's some residual value for the vehicle that they can sell into a liquid market. So I guess you can see the the risks or potential risks associated on the downside in terms of being able to resell the cars is the residual value, what they believed it was when they entered the contract and financing risk and those types of things. Mm-hmm. But I guess, uh, and I think this might be yeah. where you're going to go, they are quite sticky customers and it, it is almost as if the market is pricing mm-hmm. in a, a zero outcome if it's binary right mm, yeah well well that's it and um you know in in these leasing sort of businesses um the most upside is basically uh from customers that choose to just retain the vehicle and just keep paying a monthly mm. lease fee even though the lease may be up because that's effectively you know just pure profit um, for the leasing provider and um you know given the economic circumstances you know, we'd probably expect uh, an uptick in in uh, customers like that, notwithstanding probably you know a, a higher risk of default in the portfolio overall. But yeah, I, I guess one other point that is probably worth mentioning is that the company itself has been subject to takeover offers, uh, you know, priced in excess of 900 mil in terms of um, you know market value, uh, whereas today it's trading at only 200 mil in market value. So I think that it's, it's evident that uh, this company is quite heavily leveraged to the economic cycle. But, you know, if it goes the right way, then, um, you yeah, know, we'll, I'm, I'm sure we'll make quite a, quite a lot of money out of it and do really well, uh, you know, if our, our hypothesis plays out. Yeah, I guess it's one of those, like you said, it's not a large position. It's one of those that, you know, there are a few things that have to go in your favor. Maybe if you could find five or 10 of these in a portfolio, you can afford to you know, mm-hmm. have a small position in each and maybe a handful of them uh, work out, a handful of them don't. You just have to accept that, that, that fate, I guess. But that's kind of how you can, well, at least how I think about weightings and, and, and risk-adjusted returns. So it's an interesting one. So that's Eclipse Group um, mm-hmm. ECX, right? So that's just to re- recap on this, we've got the three yep. companies, we've got, a, or we've got a REIT, which is... Um, uh, ASX TOT Challenger, which many people will know, which is CGF, it's annuities provider, funds management business, and Eclipse Group, which is ECX. So, Emmanuel, um, mm-hmm. as we come to the end of this, um, DAP Capital, you've got the you've got the blog, you've got the website. People can follow along there, um, which I'll provide links to in the show notes. But you're also, or at least I'm hoping, you'll come back and and pitch us a few more di- ideas, perhaps next month. Uh, we can reassess and 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 I guess take a look at where our two alternative, our two narratives for the coronavirus recovery have started mm-hmm. to, to go. Um, so w- once yeah. again, Emmanuel, thanks for, thanks for joining me on the program. It's always a pleasure and uh, I look forward to chatting to you again next time. 
Yeah, no worries, Owen. It's been a pleasure as always.